0: Dear Christian friends, one of the things that these last six months of isolation has amplified is that we are not designed or intended to do life alone. I know that that might go against our spirit of rugged individualism here in America, but I think it's pretty clear that we simply weren't meant to live on an island, to live isolated lives. The Lord knew that already back in the Garden of Eden, right at creation when he expressed that it's not good for man to be alone. And so he established marriage. And then ever since then, God has been bringing people together in the way that he operates with us. Yes, as individuals craving a a relationship for eternity with each of us, but but while we're here on earth, bringing us together collectively. Think of the, the special people that he established in in Old Testament times, the Israelites, from one man, from one individual, and yet God didn't just retain Israel by himself, Jacob, but, but rather brought them into a full nation called the Israelites, and then eventually established that those Israelites, known today as, as the Jewish people, that the Jews would gather together as they have done on a regular basis on the Sabbath in the synagogue together. Even in the New Testament times, the Apostle Paul, when he started churches, he, he planted groups of believers. He didn't just simply instruct and teach every individual believer with the idea that they would then live out their respective personal individual lives by themselves, but that they would collectively gather together as the church to encourage, to build up, to bear the crosses that we talked about last Sunday, uh, to live together. Indeed, the church is for each other. And that is the the blessing that we want to understand and appreciate today. Though, as we'll see today and tomorrow, very similar related topics, subject matter as we close out this series. Yet today's issue or topic is a little bit difficult, a little bit more of a a challenge of a pill to swallow than, than next Sunday. That is, unless you enjoy the words that Ezekiel heard from the Lord. Unless you're one of those that enjoys that practice that the Lord calls us to carry out. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 8 and 9, the Lord speaking to Ezekiel says, "...when I say to the wicked, you will die, when I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood." But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. I don't know if you caught that, but it doesn't sound like either of those two options are really all that great that the Lord presented to his prophet Ezekiel. One, Either stand by idly while your brother or sister engages in sin and I tell you to call them to repentance and you say nothing, well, in that case, that person's going to die for their sin and so are you. I'm going to hold you accountable for not calling them out. On the other hand, if you do warn that wicked person that I want you to call to repentance and they still don't turn from their sin, they'll die for their sin, but you will be in the clear because you did what I asked you to do. Well, neither of those two options really sounds ideal, but there is, in fact, a third option. It is that when we lovingly call somebody to repentance, that they, they turn from that wickedness, turn to the Lord, and that is his greatest desire. And we actually did see a, a case of that, an account recorded for us in our second lesson from Galatians today. In that account, the Apostle Paul retells how he had to confront a brother in the faith, Cephas, or Peter, as we commonly know him. Now, to know a little bit of the background, both Paul and Peter were raised as Jewish people who understood the kosher dietary restrictions, the food that they could eat that was clean, and the food that they couldn't eat that was restricted, that was unclean. This also meant that they weren't supposed to eat with people who were not Jews, which we call Gentiles. Well, Peter revealed, God; the Lord had revealed to Peter that these dietary restrictions, these kosher laws, were, were no longer uh, something that would tie them down. He came to him in a vision and uh, a, a number of animals that formerly had been unclean in a sheet, and, and Peter thought he knew them as unclean, but the Lord said it was okay to eat them. Three times the Lord did that, so Peter knew it was now okay to, to eat what had formerly been recognized as unclean food. And he showed that he knew that because he was enjoying a perhaps a pulled pork sandwich in the presence of Gentiles. Well, that is until some who still subscribe to the old ways of eating had come by. We call them Judaizers, those that said, it's nice to have Jesus, and that's all well and good, but we still have to keep the Old Testament laws, those restrictions, the dietary laws. We still have to eat kosher, Peter. So, when they came around suddenly, Peter distanced himself a little bit from the Gentiles, no longer ate with them anymore, because he was concerned with the impression it would give to the Judaizers. Paul recognized his hypocrisy, and more importantly, the damage that his actions were doing, because they were causing confusion not only to the Gentiles who had formerly eaten with Peter, that now might draw the conclusion wait a minute. You told us that we were saved by faith in Jesus alone and and, and rules and regulations from the Old Testament didn't apply to us anymore, that we were free in Christ to eat this, that, or the other thing, but now you're you're acting differently. Are we actually saved by what we do and the the rules that we follow and our obedience? And, And not only the Gentiles were being led astray, but certain leaders in the church as well, as Paul points out. So Paul had that difficult task of confronting his brother in the faith Peter why because the very gospel was at stake the news that said that we are saved not by what we do but what, by what Jesus did and through faith in him alone and notice that that Paul in calling out Peter to his face and publicly in front of those that, that he had wronged that that Paul recognized and wasn't concerned about being labeled as judgmental by others but cared more about the gospel, cared more about not only the souls of those Gentiles, but even his fellow Jewish people who could be led astray by this act. So Paul lovingly called Peter out. Repentance took place, and this was one of those ideal situations that the Lord gives us this task of of pointing out the sins of others so that they would repent and they would receive forgiveness and grace and healing could take place. No, it it can happen that way, but that doesn't mean that it's always easy or that it's always going to be so easy when we are here for each other to do and carry out that difficult task of pointing out another's sin. There are two primary challenges that make this difficult for us in the church today, and one of those challenges is the world. It's the way the world views this whole practice of what we're talking about today. It views it and and labels it as being judgmental. How dare anybody else call out somebody else and and say this is wrong or, or that's wrong. But here's something very interesting. If you look at all three of the lessons for this Sunday, all of which talk about this very topic, the Old Testament lesson, the first one, the second lesson, and the Gospel, all three of them cover this topic and yet not once Do you come across the word judge, or judgment, or judgmental? What the world views as being judgmental, God simply labels and views as caring enough about your brother or sister in Christ to do something about it. That is the greatest act of love, to to see something that that is potentially causing harm or great danger to somebody else and actually warn them, which I suspect we would still do in any number of situations in this world today. If your neighbor's house was on fire, I, I think that there are still enough people in this world that would recognize the importance of warning your neighbor rather than just pulling out your phone and getting it on video. If you saw even a complete stranger headed for a cliff or some dangerous situation, you would take the time and express the care to warn them. If you saw somebody who was about to eat something that could harm or kill them, you would intervene. No, this isn't being judgmental. This is actually being the opposite of being self-absorbed and caring about others and their situation. And if we would do all of those things uh, that are to a lesser degree harmful in this world, how much more so than to carry out that greatest warning, that siren call, to somebody who is in danger of being wrapped up and consumed by sin and the eternal damaging consequences that could cause. So that's one of the challenges is knowing that that's the way the world views it and so we sometimes might be a little reluctant as Christians or, or gun or hesitant to be labeled as judgmental. The other issue, of course, the other challenge, I mentioned two of them. The second one, well, the second one is that when we are calling somebody else out for their sin, the issue is we're not just dealing with one sinner, we're dealing with two. So the one who is warning the other, you or me, is every bit as capable of not only committing or carrying out that same sin, but we know all too well the sins that we struggle with as well. And and we have to be very careful when carrying out this process that we don't allow our hearts to take us in a different direction. Because if we don't do a diagnostic test of our own hearts, it can be very easy for judgment to take the wheel and point out the sin of others and, and actually delight in it. And to find satisfaction in pointing out somebody else's sins. And when this is really troubling is particularly in the cases where it's a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling with a sin that, quite frankly, isn't one that really causes me too much struggle. And in those cases, it's very easy and appealing and tempting for me to take the the moral high ground. And the only challenge, of course, is that from up there as I'm looking down, I'm invited and tempted To fail to see my own sin and to dismiss it so long as the spotlight is on the sin of my brother or sister in Christ. So that's the other challenge is recognizing that this can be a very tempting situation for me to see the church as a bunch of other individuals. Those that God has placed and I can step on their backs on my way to an elevated higher superior position. And if that's the case, then that is actually being judgmental. That is the kind of judgment that Jesus does condemn. When he says, you who are so eager to focus on the speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye, but but you miss the piece of lumber coming out of your own, the two by four that you're carrying around, that's the judgment that Jesus does condemn in Matthew 7. And so when calling a brother or sister out in Christ, when, when warning them, We have to be very careful of where our hearts are at in that process. But we can overcome those two challenges as we're aware of them. And and when we do then, with a right, humble, caring, loving heart, when we do observe a sin or a sin that has been committed against us, how do we go about carrying out this practice? Well, we can look to Paul's example, as we saw in Galatians, how we handled it with Peter. But Jesus himself gives us the direction in the gospel for today, too. He says, when somebody sins, here's how I want you to handle it. I don't want you to post it all over social media. Rather, go to that person individually, just between the two of you. This can be a delicate situation. And and I care about people's reputations. And and my concern is for that individual, that individual would be lovingly called to repentance and see his Savior. If that doesn't happen as Jesus laid out this process, then gradually we bring more people into, into this process. Another witness or two, and then leaders in the church, and then finally the church as a last resort. But always with the same goal in mind, that goal that would lead that person to repentance, to be able to assure them of forgiveness and the grace of Jesus that washes over every sin. So we've we've talked about the, the challenges of having these maybe uncomfortable confrontations that are absolutely necessary and, and, and a part of why we're here together as a church, uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's, there's the other side of the equation too, that can make this a challenge. It's not just me overcoming the hurdles or watching out against the temptations when I'm called to warn somebody else. The other challenge is, what about when I'm the one on the receiving end? When it's somebody who's coming to me, how do I handle that situation? And it might be a little cheesy, and I'm okay with cheesy if it helps in any way, but if you remember that that brother or sister in Christ is your pal, and that, that those letters in reverse order provide some guidance for us in how to handle when somebody is coming to warn us or rebuke us of our sin. Your PAL, again in reverse order, to start with is simply to listen. Listen to them. And, and, and you, would be, you would be doing so much more than, than the most of the world today if you could sit patiently and just listen to somebody else's concerns rather than immediately getting defensive as this cancel culture does and, and, and rebuffing or rejecting or refuting or, or getting all riled up and simply just listen. Remembering that if this is a brother or sister in Christ who cares enough about you to have this uncomfortable conversation, it probably is worth listening to. And when you've heard them out, then there is some time for reflection. Assess the situation. Take into consideration the concern that your brother or sister expressed to you and assess your life to evaluate, are you guilty of that? Have you, maybe unknowingly even, carried out whatever wrong has been pointed out to you? And this is where you may even benefit from going to a trusted friend who is somebody that that you would welcome uh, a word, a difficult word from them if they observe, yes, this has been maybe an issue or I've seen it in you too. It's really what Proverbs was talking about when it, said, when it says in Proverbs that wounds from a friend can be trusted. And of course, the way that you're going to assess your life and your living and, and your words and actions are, of course, in accordance with the Word of God. That's going to be the metric by which we determine whether or not that person's charge or accusation or concern, maybe more rightly put, is legitimate. And then after listening after assessing, take the time to pray about it. Pray that that God would would reveal the solution to you, that he would give you clarity if, if it's not clear to you. Pray for direction in how to respond, to give patience if it's necessary, and to finally then repent if that's appropriate as well. And a great prayer is also the prayer uh, that is found in the psalm for today. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, Lord, where I have been wrong, where I have sinned, where I have hurt or harmed somebody else with my words or my actions. Purify my heart, cleanse me, let me make it right, and wash me in your forgiveness. Which is, after all, God's desire in all of this. It's, it's the same thing that he wants in 2020 that he did when he revealed it to Ezekiel. Where is the Lord's heart in all of this? He says in, in verse 11, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. That is where God's heart is at. That is what God wants in this whole process is that when one cares enough about the soul of a brother or sister in Christ, that that individual would be turned from that sin and to know that the Lord wants life and salvation, wants forgiveness to purify and cleanse that individual and to restore whatever relationships have been broken or harmed by that sin, whatever wrong has been done so that healing can take place. And we can again, as the psalmist David says, live in the joy of salvation. Do you know what makes this difficult process something that we can actually carry out? This challenging call to confront a brother or sister in Christ? Surprisingly, it isn't the law. It isn't a matter of just shaping up, straightening out so that we can be better and we can measure up to, to being that good church-going person that we expect everybody else assumes we're looking for. It's not the law. It's not fear at all. It's actually it's the gospel. It's knowing that we live in the freedom of Christ. It's knowing that grace and forgiveness aren't just these things that are for me when I have my act together, and when I, when I, when I don't sin, when I don't do anything wrong, but when I'm a pretty good person. And in fact, just stop and think for a moment how absurd that sounds. We wouldn't need grace or forgiveness if we had our act together, if we never did anything wrong. And so it's because I live in the gospel and the freedom that I have in Jesus that when somebody cares enough to come to me and point out a sin, I don't get defensive. I welcome it. I share their concern and say, well, maybe that's something that I I was not even aware of. I want to remain and be under the the, the, the washing waters of my baptism and the forgiveness that they have instilled in me. So by all means, please, if, if I'm in the wrong, point it out and I welcome that from a brother or sister in Christ. I don't get defensive. I don't stubbornly refuse to listen. But I realize that if somebody else cares enough about my soul that I'm going to listen and I know that that's going to only end up in a good place. Because if I'm in the wrong and it takes me to the cross, there I see forgiveness. And if it takes me to the tomb, there I see victory over the very sin that I have committed. And in Jesus, I see the grace that I need each and every day. Not because I have my act together, but because I don't. Because I'm a sinner who needs that grace every single day. Day. I know it, it stands contrary to, to the world's view of things. The world is still going to look at this and label it as being judgmental to, to call somebody else's sin out. But why would we look to the world for an example of love when the world's idea of love is permission? It's tolerance. It's letting anybody and everybody do anything and everything they want. That's not love. God says love for a soul is actually to point out, to warn, to care enough about somebody, to call them to repentance so that he might lavish them with his grace. The Lord himself knew how difficult and how many people would be deceived by the world's idea of love. And that's why he lamented to Ezekiel in the last part of these verses, Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die people of Israel. He knew how easily people are distracted and and, and deceived by this lie that the world applies, that love is letting anything go. So dear friends, be thankful, be grateful that you have a church filled with brothers and sisters in Christ who care enough about you to point out wrong and, and call you to repentance so that forgiveness may be lavished on you. And if you don't have that, let me encourage you to be vulnerable, to be open enough to pursue a a Christian congregation. If you're watching somewhere and you don't have one of those, to do that, to welcome those that care enough about you to help you on this journey through life. So that we don't stray. So that we don't get tripped up in the sins, the blind spots that we often don't see. But rather, that we can, in love, be called to repentance, Confess those sins and receive forgiveness. On that note, I invite you and encourage you to to come back next Sunday as we close up this series on that very topic, the other side of, of these conversations, really, and really the calling card of the church, forgiveness. Amen.